Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. I just see again and again it motivates kids to, to do their best. And then to be proud of it, because there's nothing like, in fact, getting public response to it. An educator seeks out disadvantaged kids and turns their ideas into books, videos, and other media. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Where some people see inner-city teens as trouble-prone and possibly frightening, Educator Barbara Servone sees a fount of ideas and maybe her next book project or film. The organization she founded, What Kids Can Do, is based nationally at her home near Providence, Rhode Island. Its publishing house, Next Generation Press, has produced more than a dozen books and videos, including bestsellers, that range from youth-produced photo essays to interviews by young people with mentors who matter. Her passion is to give youth not just an outlet, but a voice. Well, the idea that there's a public audience makes all the difference in the world. It sharpens their critical thinking and their ideas about what stories are, are worth telling. I mean, in this particular vein of youth as media creators um, or creators of knowledge. So they really need to, it sharpens the questions that they ask and the issues that they're going to um, choose to tell. It forces them Oftentimes, I mean, it's very hard with this age. It's natural part of the age is sort of looking inward, um, a narcissism or whatever, or identity quest, but very much an introspection. Um, and so it forces them, when you say there's a public audience, it's, got to, it's typically not so much about them, but it's about something outside them. And so it changes what it is that they're thinking, but, and it teaches them kind of new skills because... To, to do that kind of work, they need to learn how to be an interviewer, how to be a documenter, how to be a photographer. They, they need to take these skills that um, don't just happen on a piece of paper or in a classroom. But um, the fact that there's a public audience ratchets up the quality of what they do. Um, and to, The quality, the of, quality of, of, of their, their language? Work, of their language, of... Um, and the work that we've done, um, we kind of have a reputation for with teachers and students is that we're <laughs> we're tough because uh, we'll look at uh, photographs that have been turned in as part of a project, whatever, and we'll say that may be good for you know a school 
scrapbook, but it's not good for a publication. It's not good for the web. It's not good for a public audience. Got to go do it again. And the teachers sort of get into this mood and they say, yeah, got to go do it a third time. And so there's a constant revision of work that's required when there's going to be a public audience for it. Barbara Servone and her colleagues at What Kids Can Do collect and publish the ideas young people have for how to improve their schools, the stories of what it's like to be an immigrant teenager, and the experiences presented in this video of youth who are the first in their family to make it to college. I felt like not very prepared for, uh, for college and high school. Um, there are a lot of challenges that I had to overcome and I really had to do that by myself um, because there wasn't a lot of people here that could relate. You have to read a book in a week, you have to write a paper that's over 10 pages. I was like, I could hardly write a paragraph. I can't write this in, for next week. So that was always very, very scary, but challenging. My mom is the only woman in our family to put both her kids through high school. Do I want to spend my life um, in poverty? Do I want to spend my life in the ghetto? Do I want to spend my life surrounded with uh, a vast, a vast gap of lack of opportunity. I knew growing up uh, in the place that I was growing up in, that education was my ticket out of there. I started to see that, you know, it was a possibility for me too. There were ways to go to college if I really wanted to go to college. So um, I just started talking with people. Um, Central to really the vision of what kids can do is a belief that youth offer a vast, undertapped, and underappreciated resource for helping society if only we would listen. Barbara Servone. The young people that concern me most, there's a social fear of these black, six-foot teenager, male teenager, walking down the street, and people immediately think, oh, God, let me hold my pocketbook a little bit tighter. Um, and, but there, so there's certainly with, with youth of color... There are stereotypes and other kinds of places the mind travels immediately upon seeing them or having an encounter that really goes against at all this idea of thinking that these are, there's great potential in this young person. Instead, the wonder is what's wrong or what do I need to fear? What are the risks? And they carry that phrase. I mean, if, if you're you know, a Latino youth in New York City, you're seen as at risk. Um, I mean, it becomes that kind of definition. I've been trying to train myself over these years to not just use that as the disadvantaged or at risk as the label that we put on young people, which totally makes you see what's their deficits as opposed to their strengths. Barbara Servone supports public programs that help youth in crisis, but she says that our preconceptions and cultural images of teenagers as dysfunctional or even dangerous can give a very distorted picture. And the media has, you know, always really gravitated towards um, the the stories that talk about um, what's wrong with kids, and 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 the studies that foundations fund always talk about, you know, the teenage pregnancy or whatever else. So there's um, so a kind of bias that that kids are trouble, right? The kids are trouble, right? And kids at this age, particularly, um, I think we think much more about the limits that they need, as opposed to the opportunities for spreading their wings.
What Kids Can Do was founded in 2001 by Barbara Cervone, drawing on her decades of experience of supporting adolescent learning in and out of school. Well, in a certain sense, I probably began it back in 1965 when, um, as graduating from high school, um, I came from a family that had a strong belief in social purpose and social justice. In the uh, summer after my freshman year in college, I, I volunteered for Head Start programs in Los Angeles in the morning, and then in the afternoon I went to Upward Bound programs at UCLA and spent weekends working with high school students. And so that was, um, and sort of, I've been doing it in one way or another ever since. Barbara earned a doctorate in education from Harvard and went on to start a small network of schools, then became a national researcher in public education and a grantmaker investing hundreds of millions of dollars in public schools. I had come to this point that I felt personally that I was really far removed from where I had started um, being close to um, students and young people and um, their adult allies that I was I was now you know sitting on the 26th floor of the <laughs> Carnegie Corporation um, in New York City um, with people who themselves had become far removed from where the action really was and in the end it's up to the teachers in the classrooms and the students to create the kind of um, achievement and futures good futures for young people and also there was a time a, a switch in tenor around what was important for teachers and students to be doing and accomplishing. And it was an era where standardized testing, high stakes testing, started to gain a foothold. And although I believe strongly in the accountability that those kinds of tests um, seek to demand, um, I'm a champion of a kind of learning that goes beyond what fills, gets filled in on a multiple choice um, test sheet. And, um, and I want teachers and students to be doing more than simply learning, memorizing the materials that will go into that test. What Kids Can Do began as a national effort to amplify the voices of young people, especially those marginalized by race and poverty, and to find ways for them to be heard in policy debates about school, society, and world affairs. The group branched out internationally in 2006. What I really became more keenly aware of is the real capacity of young people to, in fact, be knowledge creators as opposed to simply folks who memorize other people's knowledge or receive other people's knowledge, and that they, in fact, can be active contributors in their community. So, this, so there's sort of two arms to that. One is that they can actually raise knowledge, pre present new knowledge, from their work, let's say, as photojournalists or from, um, uh, and this comes back to the kind of education that, that they have if uh, students go out and there's a, for example, here where I live in Barrington, right next to the high school, there's something called the Hundred Acre Cove. It's a wonderful estuary. And I firmly believe that and wish that those students, that time was made for them to go 
right across the street and be doing water quality sampling, doing looking at the migration of birds, looking at um, the floodplain, and then and because no one is really taking that attention, and that they took their biology skills and they actually created a new set of knowledge around that. So multiply that in millions of different ways. So I see young people as being able to do that. So real experiential real learning, right, not, experiential not just learning. from a textbook or right. listening to a right. lecture in a classroom. Right. And so exactly. And so they are doing more. So they're actually part of creating that kind of knowledge. And then I see again and again how young people can, in fact, um, contribute. Um, they, and particularly in, let's say, a small rural community, which is the first place I learned this, where every, everybody is, is needed often to help a community um, work, help a village work. And so I've seen examples where the local economy was in fact tanking, but young people took on some new, brought some fresh thinking to it, whether it's developing an aquaculture industry in a dying coastal town in Maine, or, or looking about bringing wind turbine farms into a town in the plains of South Dakota. And so I've just seen examples again and again when young people were given the kind of the opportunities and supports um, to make that kind of contribution. They could do that. And there's also this notion of trying to have a much broader idea of what young people can do as opposed to one that basically says they're good when they don't do certain things. They're good when they don't drink and drive. They're good when they don't get pregnant. They're good when they don't drop out. They're good when they don't, aren't violent. You know, they're good when they're, they score at a proficiency level. Um, and, and I just feel they're capable of so much more than that. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Giving Voice to Youth, check our website, humanmedia.org. What Kids Can Do, founder Barbara Servone. We had a big grant from the Gates Foundation to support student action research projects in small schools around the country. And so students picked an issue. For example, there was a group in a high school in Boston, Brighton High School, that decided they wanted to look at the inequalities between Boston urban schools and suburban schools around college preparation. And they started off with this idea of doing surveys, the kinds of things that um, people mo might normally do and spending a lot of time c coming up with a good survey and focus groups. But they actually decided to videotape what they were doing. And there was a brother of the teacher who in fact was a videographer who agreed to help do the, the videotaping themselves. And from that they then found that the best way to make their case was through a video. And um, that was interspersed with information and whatever. So they, they created their own video about this using the, the footage that this fellow had gotten. But they edited it all. They learned how to edit it and put it together themselves. If you hear your teacher telling you, the people that taught you what you know telling you that, I mean, there's, that you're not going to go anywhere, you're going you're gonna to start to believe it. 
because those are people like you almost look up to. Like outside of family and friends, you're like you're with them six hours a day, like every day. So those are people that you're real close to, and if they don't have high expectations of yourself, it's gonna be hard for you to have have them for yourself either. So in fact. If you want to ask me, most of the kids... That video, um, you know, it's about 22 minutes, and we've distributed close to 5,000 copies of them. We get, just yesterday, I got a request from uh, the Portland community, some Portland community college, that they want to video stream it into, like, 10 different classrooms because because of its, it's excellent, but it's raw in terms of uh, video production, and, and it has the perspective of young people in it, and it is just powerful for that very reason. I mean, people can watch a Bill Moyers great piece about it too, um, but it's, uh, it doesn't have that same kind of immediacy as these young people talking about it. and Some, Something very genuine about totally it. Totally genuine about it. And what really going to other schools and finding out what opportunities other students are getting, it, really, I, it made me realize what opportunities I'm not getting at my school. Or if the, if the student doesn't says he's not going to do his work, or he doesn't feel like he wants to, I don't know, maybe a phone call home or something like that. But most teachers, they think that there are no parents, or the parents don't care if the student's acting like this. But maybe that student just needs some encouragement. From the problem we all live with, inequalities between Boston's urban and suburban public schools, presented by What Kids Can Do. Barbara Cervone. There's certainly things that young people can go and do and collect and ask that other folks can't by virtue of their age, or in some cases, the virtue of the identity of the, the, um, the students who are gathering this information. And so I'll give an example of a project that we, we worked at at various levels in New York City with students who were newcomers to the United States. In New York City, there's a system of schools for newcomer, Im immigrant um, young people. And we worked in three different schools with a total of about 75 students to collect the stories of immigrant workers in New York City. These tended to be often their parents, a relative, um, a neighbor, um, someone on the corner grocery that they had come to know. I mean, one of the things that was particularly about these young people doing it is that they had access to people that we might, you know, you, would, you might have a hard time finding these, these people, but they could find them right away because it was, it might be their father or it might be the corner grocer. And so they spent time going out, using the skills that you're using right now of interviewing with a tape recorder um, and collected those stories. And then they transcribe them, and then we led them through this process that we do to turn a transcript into a first-person account. They also had digital cameras, and they photographed them. And from that, we created this book called 40 Cent Tip. And um, the students also, we, the folios from the book were mounted in an exhibit at the Queen's Museum of Art, and they've also been in different other galleries in New York City. And the book was, you could for a while, you could walk into Borders in downtown Manhattan, and you could find this book there. And um, for the young people, as you can only imagine, it was just particularly as young people who felt like they didn't speak English that well. I mean, they learned a whole lot doing this through the transcribing and whatever, but they also felt, wow, you know, we um, look at this. And one of the boys brought his father to the bookstore in Manhattan and showed the book. 
and his father went up to the manager and said, this is my son, you know, and so it was just all amazing that this, this could happen, so the power for the young person. But, but from the adults, uh, many people have said just from that one book how um, it really changed the way they look at the service workers, the taxi cab drivers, the other people around them, that in a city these days, and it isn't just New York City, it's elsewhere, that, I mean, it was stunning to me to, to learn that the chambermaid in my hotel actually might have been a teacher in Guatemala, that the um, taxi cab driver might, in fact, have been a bank, a middle-level bank executive in Thailand. And I was one of these people who didn't often leave a tip in um, hotels. So somehow I, had, I, mean, I knew I did it for cabs and I knew I did it for restaurants, but I didn't think about it necessarily for the because they were invisible, didn't see them. And so that was something I quickly learned from, from this book. And, and people talk about a, a whole variety of lessons of looking at the immigrants and their, the immigrant workers in their community who tend to be in service positions and having a, a better sense that they're not nameless, um, that they have stories, um, and that you know, the, the hard work that they're putting into where they are. One of your um, goals is to groom kids to document our society and to become advisors to educators and, and others. What kinds of information and experience do you think the kids have that decision makers need to hear about? I mean, I, I think there, there's a whole realm of um, things that decision makers need to know more about these um, young people. And so some of it is just the, um, particularly for kids in poor communities, is having more of a sense of what their daily life is like. I mean, I'm always floored, again, when I know what it is that they are, um, that they take as a given in their life, um, be it a group of students I met with this last week in, in New York City. There are six kids, and five of the six were living or immigrants and had families separated. And actually, th three of the five were living with their father, and their mother still lived in Senegal or, or Dominican Republic. And um, so they're living without living without one of their parents. They've got their families kind of broken up. Their their father is driving a cab to try and make ends meet and sending money back. And so one of the things that we do, at what kids can do, is we we try and bring together the compelling voices of young people to tell their stories and tell their experiences. So people who are sitting further away, who don't have any access to young people, regardless of their color of their skin or their socioeconomic status, that they can hear their voices. That might be, you know, a chief state school officer, or it could be someone um, in the House of Representatives who's dealing with I mean, public education funding. So we try to bring, put these young people's lives in, in context for, for them so that they understand that they're not just, that they're not just a statistic. We also, um, particularly with, with teachers, um, we've done this with a book that we wrote for parents too. When, in those cases, try and bring young people's advice to bear for, 
for new teachers entering classrooms, for example. We, we wrote this book called Fires in the Bathroom, Advice to Teachers from High School Students, and we have a middle school version of that. We first began by asking teachers, new teachers, what, what do you wish you knew from your students about your students? And so um, those, their questions range from how do you feel about having your birthday noticed in the classroom? to um, how, how can I better ask questions of students so that it engages your interest? Or how can I show you that I do care about how you're, you're doing? Or how do I gain control of a class? What, what, what's the tone that I need to be thinking about setting um, that first week in class? And how, how can I get to know you better? And how much of myself should I share with you? Do I need to be your friend to teach you well? Um, how do I have you work better in teams? I mean, there's a lot of group work that happens in classrooms these days, but sometimes it really doesn't achieve its goals. And so, so looking to I mean, students who've been on the other end of this interaction, this relationship, or in the case of the work we did with um, parents and their adolescent kids, again, in that kind of relationship. So what is it that it would be helpful for the adult to know so that they could do their job better? So you pose that question so of pose, the kids. Right. So, right. So we first got questions from the teachers, and then we pose those questions to the kids. And the way, way we do this is actually not as simple you know, one-on-one interviews, but we arrange, we go to a city like San Francisco and we use the networks of schools and folks that we know there and we bring together maybe 10 young people over a period of three days, three or four days. So for six or seven hours a day, they become a working group. some of the pointers for faculty by youth published in the book Fires in the Bathroom. Daryl said, my new teacher didn't set boundaries about what was okay to do. Kids would take out sports or motorcycle magazines in the middle of a class discussion. The first time it happened, he should have addressed it right away. And Marable said, sometimes students need to have their head down for a while. Sometimes I feel sick but I still go to school because if I miss, it gets me stressed out for a week or two. And Laurel Liz said, I don't want people to hear me talk because I don't want people to notice me. I have this fear that people judge me for every little thing. I stutter when I'm nervous, so it's a big thing for me. What kids can do empowers young people to tell their own stories and document what's happening in the society around them. A youth media team in Providence, Rhode Island, decided to record the voices of people who rely on the local public transit system. You know, as someone who goes out with tape recorders, I know sometimes they don't work. You think you're recording and they're not. And so that was one of the first things that went wrong um, with this, even though we'd practiced using the tape recorder. But it's one of these digital recorders. You're out in the sun. You can't see if it's on or not. And so, so um, this one of the students had captured this great interview with a fellow who was probably about 70 years old and was a veteran and who used the buses to go everywhere and had was filled with opinions and not, was also very knowledgeable. 
and colorful, you know, the kinds of things that just make a, a really strong interview. And then he discovered in the end, the kid discovered that his, when I went up afterwards and we looked at, you know, he saw that he hadn't recorded it. And he said, oh, God, you know, and I said, well, you just have to go back and do it again. He said, oh, how can I do that, whatever else. And I said, go back and just say you're, you're learning that this, you know, this is your first day doing this and um, you're learning. And unfortunately, one of the things you just learned was that you always have to make sure your tape recorder is going and ask the guy if you could talk to him again. And so he did, and the guy, of course, said sure. Barbara Servone, founder of What Kids Can Do, publisher of books and videos from Next Generation Press. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston and The Network Incorporated. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Giving Voice to Youth, is Humankind Program number 136. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.